Our text this morning is from Genesis 18, the second half of it. And uh, I guess I'll give you a heads up now. Anyone know what next week is? Yes, the first Sunday of Advent. And that means we're going to stop in Genesis. We're going to pick up later on after Christmas, but uh, we'll be heading into Matthew for the Advent season. So, just to give you a heads up on that. So if you come expecting to hear me talk about Genesis 19 tomorrow and next week, you'll be sadly disappointed. So, anyway, starting in verse 16, Genesis 18. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from me uh, for you to do such a thing and to put put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in that city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, "Uh, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge from... Your word that you revealed yourself to Abraham. 
And you did that in order that you might reveal yourself to all who are his, are his children by faith in the promise. And so I ask that you would illuminate your word this morning, that we might know you better, and that therefore we might trust you more completely. I ask that you would illuminate your word so that we might know your call to us in light of Christ's work for us. I ask this in the name of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. If you ask just about anybody, they will have a sense of right and wrong. Now, their sense of what is right and wrong may differ from yours, but they still have a sense that some things are right and some things are wrong. If you ask just about any person, they will also have some sense of justice. That there are some things that shouldn't take place in this world, that, that some people are oppressive and some people are oppressed. This text this morning, and the ones that we'll actually read later on, really hit at the heart of that. Because some people read chapters 18 and 19 and walk away with a great sense that unrighteousness has been done and that God himself has been unjust. And I don't really understand how you can walk away from this text with that sense. Because this really is all about righteousness and about justice. If, if we were to count up these words, we would find that those two words are all over the place in this text. This is what it's about. And it's about it in three different ways, but it is about those two things completely. The big idea is that the righteous and just God makes us righteous and just We see from verses 16 through 21 that God chooses people to make them righteous and just. We see at the beginning of this passage that that God has a secret. He has just enjoyed a meal made by Abraham and his family. And now he has a secret and he's talking amongst himself, so to speak, saying, should I let Abraham know what I'm about to do? And in thinking about that, he makes mention of the greatness of Abraham, the future greatness of Abraham. He mentions the surety of the promise from Genesis chapter 12. He connects it that surely Abraham will become a great nation and will be a great blessing to the nations. Now we get to the part that stands out to me. I have chosen him. If you look in your footnotes, most of the footnotes will say, or known. The Hebrew word there is yada, which is the normal word to know, but it has a a wider breadth of meaning. It it can mean to know someone. It can mean to know them intimately. And so those passages when you see, you know, Adam knew Eve, okay, that's this word. So it's an intimate knowledge, a a well-rounded knowledge of a person. Not only that, but this word can also mean to discriminate or to distinguish, to know someone apart from another, to know good from evil, to be able to distinguish between good and evil, right and wrong. And so what's going on here is that God is saying, I intimately know Abraham and I have set Abraham apart. I have chosen him. And so the the translations are not wrong, but they're building on this other aspect of the meaning of no. 
Which is not strange because if we look throughout the rest of Scripture, we find similar things. If we go to Romans 8, what do we find? That those He foreknew, He predestined. That it's the same idea. Building on that Hebrew idea of knowledge, that, that those that God knew, not their actions that He knew, in fact, Hebrews not, I mean, sorry, Romans 9 completely removes the idea that God is basing election upon the actions or foreseen faith of people. It's the people He knows. It is the people that He loves and therefore chooses. We see that as well in Ephesians chapter 1. Those He loved before the creation of the world, He chose. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. And so this election and knowledge of, the, of a person are tied together in Scripture, not just here in Genesis 18, but in Romans 8, Ephesians 1, and elsewhere. But there's a purpose that goes beyond just choosing them. He says, so that. He chose Abraham so that he would direct or command, instruct his children in the way of the Lord so that they would be a righteous and just people. Catch the order. The order is incredibly important here. God did not choose Abraham because he and his people were righteous and just. He chose them specifically that they might become righteous and just. We see this as well in Romans 8. He chose us, the whom he foreknew, so that we would be, con- would be conformed to the likeness of his son. And his son is what? Righteous, just. Ephesians chapter 1. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Why? That we might be holy and blameless. And so one of the criticisms that sometimes comes against people who believe in the Reformed doctrine of predestination is that it, it lends people towards spiritual laziness so they make no spiritual growth. They're not godly people. And yet we see when we take the passages in context, it is meant for that very purpose, to make them. God is at work to make them righteous and just, holy and blameless. Righteousness and justice. What are these things? They're they're central to this text. We better talk a little bit about what they mean. And really, the righteousness has this idea of conformity to the law, the law which reflects God's own character. And so the law says that we are to love not just the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but to love our neighbor as ourselves. And even says that we are to love our enemies. The law commands love. And so someone who is, for instance, a racist breaks the law because they are hating someone instead of loving that person. And so a racist would be someone who is unrighteous because they have broken God's righteous law. They've violated his law. Justice is similar to this, but a little different. Righteousness... Uh, Sorry, justice is not about conforming to the law, but actually it's about giving others what they deserve because of the law. In a sense, you're, you're maintaining their rights 
So there's two sides to it. Maintaining rights on the one hand and punishing the guilty on the other. We tend to think of justice only in that second sense of punishing the guilty, but it's also to maintain the rights of others. It's really about our actions towards others with respect to how they've treated the law. And so an example of being just would have been the civil rights movement. Because it recognized that certain people were hated and treated as second-class citizens, violating God's law. And so they came to try and end that, so that they were treat, these people were treated equally as being made in God's image. So that, that was an attempt to bring justice to a situation, to end oppression of particular people and restore justice. So you understand how those two are, are connected but different, I hope? And so God is, is calling Abraham to both of these things, but also he is calling Abraham to instruct his children in these things. which indicates a few things, one of which is righteousness and justice do not come naturally to the human heart. They are foreign. Although we have some sort of vague, uh, you know, inherent sense that there is a right and there is a wrong, uh, we, our, our sense of it is often faulty because we call some things good which are actually evil and we call some things evil which are actually good. Okay? We have a mixed up sense of it. We, we tend to, to say that we want other people to be righteous, and yet we're not always sure that we have to be righteous. We kind of have a double standard oftentimes. Not only that, but that we want people to be just towards us, but, you know, we're not always just towards other people. So because of our fallenness, we, we must learn what it really means to be righteous and just. Israel needed to hear this because it's tied specifically to the reality of the blessing to the nations. And so what God is saying is that Israel would not be a blessing to the nations, would not fulfill his promise to Abraham if Israel was filled with unrighteousness and injustice. They were only going to be a blessing to the nations in as much as they were righteous and just. And it's the same for the, for the church as well. We are not a blessing to the people around us if we are unrighteous. If we are sinning, we are not blessing the people who are around us. If we are taking the part of the oppressor in a society, we are not being a blessing to the people around us as a church. And so there's a sense in which people have a right to be outraged when the church is refusing to accept the reality of its sin or its place as an oppressor. And sadly, that has happened. We see instances where, for instance, much of the church in Germany supported the marginalization and the destruction of Jewish people. That's oppressive, that's unrighteous. We have examples of that within our own country where there were many white Christians in the South who supported the Jim Crow laws. That was unrighteous. That was oppressive and unjust. 
We weren't being what we were called to be. Where does this start? I think it starts exactly where God says it starts. Family. It starts with parents, particularly fathers, instructing their children in what righteousness and justice are. This morning we're going to have a baptism. And part of what they are pledging to do when they bring this child to baptism is to do that very thing. To raise this child to know the way of the Lord, meaning Christ as their Savior, but in addition to that, what justice and righteousness really are. The way of the Lord. The only way you have just communities is if you have just families in those communities. And the only way you have just families is if just parents who know Christ, who know Him as Savior but also as Lord and are instructing their children. We see this in places like Deuteronomy 6, for instance. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. Meaning, all day, every day. Whenever the opportunity presents itself. Obviously, we're not going to only talk about these things, but there to be an important part of what we talk about in the context of a family as a community of believers. These are the things that we, we talk to each other about. We see this as well in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 6. Parents, do not exasperate your children, but raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. How do we exasperate them? We don't raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We don't instruct them. And so what is righteousness and justice? This call is consistent throughout Scripture. There's a whole book of the Bible given over to it called Proverbs. It starts with that call of faith in the first few chapters, but then it talks about practical righteousness, wisdom, how to live by that faith you expressed in chapters 1 and 2. And so there's a call, a strong call here, that God, who has called us, now calls us to become people who are righteous and just. That's the effect of the calling, not the cause of the calling. Secondly, God brings justice to the unrighteous and unjust. The secret that he is wondering, so to speak, he's playing with us, obviously, whether he should talk to Abraham about, has to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. And what is happening here is that he is taking Abraham into his confidence. Amos chapter 3, I believe it is, says that when, when God is going to do something, he reveals it to his servants, the prophets. And so on the one hand, Abraham here is being uh, treated as though he were a prophet. But also when you go to John fifteen fifteen, what you find, Jesus says, you are no longer my servants, but you are now my friends because a servant does not know his master's business, but I'm telling you mine. Abraham is about to learn his master's business. Abraham is, I believe, the only person in Scripture who is called a friend of God. 
He's both prophet and friend. And God is going to reveal to him what he is about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah for that very reason. Why is he doing this? He mentions the outcry. uh, He has heard the cries of the victims from Sodom and Gomorrah. There are people there who have been oppressed. There are people who have been treated unrighteously. They have been sinned against. And their cries are the ones that he hears. He is not deaf to them. Think about uh, what's going on in America today right now. There's a lot of crying going on, especially at airports, right? And it seems like a lot of people in Washington are kind of deaf to those cries. There are people who believe they are being treated unrighteously and unjustly. And they're crying out. Well, most of them aren't crying out to God. And the victims of Sodom and Gomorrah really weren't calling out to him either. But he still hears. And he still acts. So he's about to act upon the cries that he hears from the victims of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's interesting, the, the, the contrast that is here, because earlier what had happened in this very same spot, pretty much, Lot looked out over the valley, and what did he see? Fertile land. Now, God stands in pretty much the same place, looks out over that very same valley, what does he see? Unrighteousness. Injustice. What Lot saw as beautiful, God sees as ugly. Lot's perspective was way off in so many ways. He look, God looks and sees a wicked city. They were unrighteous. They broke God's law. And they were also unjust because they were oppressing other people. And you're going to, when we get into 19, we're going to see that very clearly. Uh, some people have said that their, their great and heinous sin was that they broke the law of hospitality. No. <laughs> it's far more profound than that. Um, they were not hospitable, but it went beyond that. Um, such that God would say that this is a great, grievous sin that these people have committed. But we see here that God is not merely acting on hearsay. He's going to establish the truth with two witnesses. And so what we find is that there's a parting of the way. We have the three men. One stays and talks with Abraham, and two leave to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then when we get to chapter 19, it says, verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Okay, So two of them go into the city so that what... The sin of this city will be established by the testimony of these two witnesses in the presence of God himself. What's going to happen? It's interesting that what is going to happen is really put into the mouth of Abraham. As he dialogues with God about this, the first thing he says is that, will you sweep away the whole city? We do that all the time, don't we? At least I do. My wife, she's not here, but she's got her her three-step process to clean the floor in our kitchen, the big new kitchen that I now have to clean sometimes. The first of the three-step process is to get out the Fagin and the Blick. For those of you who are Dutch, you know what that means. Dustpan and broom. Sweep it up. 
gather all of the crumbs and food and dirt and, that we've been tracking into the house, to gather at one place, sweep it in that little pan, and put it in the trash. That's the imagery Abraham uses. That all of the wicked will be swept up, tossed out. The second image, put to death, which that word can mean simply to kill, but here the context is execute, that someone is going to receive ultimate justice for their sins and crimes, death. This is a harsh penalty. It is not a light sin that they have committed. And thirdly, destroy. It has this idea of, of ruining the city. It's not just killing the people, but it basically it's flattening the city. Think of Pompeii for a minute. I used to, when I was a kid, I was fascinated by Pompeii. Well, the volcano that erupted did not just kill the people. It did that by sucking all of the oxygen out of the air. So all of these people just collapsed where they were, but then the lava came and covered the city, obliterating it until archaeologists found it years later. Or think of Hiroshima, where a city is almost obliterated instantaneously. That's the picture of what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. Obliteration is going to take place. But what we need to keep in mind here is that God is righteous in executing justice in the absence of righteousness. God is not just taking out a city for the fun of taking out a city. This is not merely a natural disaster like Pompeii. God is going to execute justice on the wicked, which is clear from this text. And so when people don't like this text, what they're really kind of going at is they don't like the fact that God holds people accountable. They're okay with you and me holding one another, uh, people accountable, but not God. They're uncomfortable because they know the depths of his righteousness and his justice. But Israel needed to know two things. First, that God could and would do this to those who oppressed them. What happened to Egypt? God delivered them from Egypt, and and he executed justice. He did not obliterate them, but he did execute a severe justice penalty upon the people of Egypt. And so they needed to know that God would continue to do that. If they were oppressed, that God would hear their cries and that he would rise up and he would defeat their enemies. But not only that, they had to remember that God would do this to them if they turned into the oppressive sinners. That's what the exile was all about. God flattened Jerusalem because of their sin and their oppression. He would bring them back, but still he did it. We find not not only that, but we see in in Revelation 2 and 3, when Jesus is warning the the seven churches, there's one church where he says nothing bad about, but he calls all the other six to repent. And there are some that he says that if you don't, 
I will remove your lampstand. Meaning you will cease to be a church. You will no longer exist. And if you look at most of those places, what has happened in 2,000 years? Are there churches there? No, it's Asia, Asia Minor. Anyone know what Asia Minor is now? Turkey. What is the official religion of Turkey? Islam. These churches, a lot of these churches struggled and fell into disobedience and refused to repent. So God's justice establishes the cause of the oppressed even while it punishes the oppressor. Let's get to the good stuff. (laughs) That's the hard news. But the third part of this is that Jesus intercedes for all those he makes righteous. We find here that Yahweh stays to talk while the other two two depart for Sodom and Gomorrah. In a sense, he's he's testing Abraham. He's inviting this discussion that, that goes on. We see, remember, that Abraham has a vested interest in Sodom and Gomorrah. First off, because his nephew Lot lives in Sodom. And he wants his nephew to be delivered from the wrath of God. This is a noble thing. Not only that, but years earlier, Abraham had rescued the people of Lot from the four kings of the north. So he has a a, a very vested, important vested interest in the continuity of this community, Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he begins to haggle with God. It's kind of interesting, the idea of haggling, isn't it? That's why I don't like it when I go to Mexico and have to haggle at a market. I always feel like I'm getting ripped off. No matter what I pay, I feel like I could have gotten more out of that guy. I don't like haggling. But here is, here is Abraham negotiating with God. and He starts with 50, which would mean essentially that 50 men. A small city numbered the size of about 100 in that day. So he's basically saying if, if Sodom is a small city... Half the men are righteous. You're not going to destroy the righteous with the unrighteous, are you? Would you do that? That's his argument. He calls God the judge of all the earth. Judge is probably not the best term. It's the, uh, to, to judge or to experience judgment in Hebrew is mishfat, and it comes from the original verb shafat. God is the shafat. But there, remember, they didn't have three branches of government like we do. It resided in one man. The king made the law. The king interpreted the law. And the king executed the law. And so God is the ruler of the nations. He is the one who makes the laws of the nations, holds them accountable for those laws, and executes justice upon the nations. And here's, here is the argument. Shall not the ruler of the nations do what is just? God, don't be unjust in how you execute justice is a very human thing to do. We so often are unjust in our attempts to execute justice. 
But he knows God is not like that. This God who has the authority and the power to judge the nations will not do that. And so he he keeps engaging. Okay, for 50 people, I will not destroy the city. Abraham comes back. What about five? If 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 it's lacking five people, if there's only 45 righteous people, you're going to destroy the city for the sake of the five people? He says, I will spare the city for the presence of 45 righteous men. What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? Now imagine that for a moment. Let's say it was a small city and you have 100 men and all of their families. God has agreed to spare a whole city of nine, with 90 wicked people in it for the sake of 10 people who love him and follow his law. How gracious he is. People look at this and they, oh, how harsh he is. Look and see how gracious he is. How compassionate that he is not willing to destroy this this city for the sake of ten people. And as we'll see in January, he couldn't find ten. So great was the sin of that city. But Abraham keeps appealing to God's righteous character in order to protect the righteous who are in that city. What does that have to do with Jesus? Two things. One, 1 John chapter 2 says that he's writing so that they will not sin. Then he says, and if you do, the righteous one is our advocate before the Father. And so what happens is that Jesus, sort of like Abraham, pleads before the Father, not on the grounds of general mercy, but on the grounds of his own obedience, death, and resurrection, that his people might be forgiven. That doesn't stop. You know, I mean, we still sin, right? He still stands to intercede. And that's, where, that's why we read Hebrews 7 this morning. He lives forever. He's able to save us to the uttermost because He lives forever to intercede for us. And so He continues to plead with God on the basis of His obedience, His death, His resurrection and ascension. Save those people. Do not execute your justice on them, but also protect them because there are people who want to harm them. So we, we see that even in, in the petition that we, and from the Lord's Prayer. That's part of those petitions. Uh, in other words, he, he's pleading that we would not sin. Lead us not into temptation is what we pray, right? Keep them from sin. But when they do, they have an advocate. The righteous one before the Father. Not only that, not only keep them from sin, but pray that oppression would end. Last Sunday was uh, persecuted church Sunday. Just kind of remember and to pray for the persecuted church. And this week, you know, so many of these things came up again. 
a pastor in Iran who's under, under the death sentence unless he recants. The only reason he's going to have the death sentence is because he's a Christian and not a Muslim. We find the same thing with a, uh, a young lady in, I can't remember, Pakistan, I believe. She's also under the death penalty. Jesus pleads for our ultimate deliverance. He intercedes for the end of this unrighteousness, this oppression that takes place. So, since we're made in the image of God, all people have some sense of righteousness and justice. And where the church, the church lacks them, people begin to discredit the gospel. Such righteousness and justice are fruits of the gospel, purchased by the Messiah who now intercedes in our behalf. And as we listen to this, as, as we hear this call, are we apathetic? Kind of, eh, eh, maybe I'll pursue it, maybe not. Are we resistant? I don't want to give up my sin. Or are we asking God to graciously teach us to be righteous and just? Do we go before him and say, Father, I'm not what I'm supposed to be, and I thank you that you love me, but continue to work to make me what I'm supposed to be, what you have called me to be. And praying that for our brothers and sisters. That's where Genesis 18 takes us with the gospel. A passion, a hunger and thirst, that sounds familiar, Matthew 5, for righteousness. And not just righteousness, but justice. For both are found there in the scripture. Let's pray. I think we need to pray. Father, uh, it is a strange time to be a Christian, to follow you, because sometimes we try to divorce righteousness from justice, two things that you have joined together, and we are fools to try and separate them. Father, I'm concerned for your church around the world because we tend to do that. Teach us from your word that these things go hand in hand. That, be, that you have a heart for the oppressed as your word clearly, repeatedly indicates and that you express that through your people. Father, I ask that you would be uh, at work in us as a church body to, uh, to balance these things and to keep both of these in light and, and to recognize them as fruit of the gospel, as the results of what you begin in us 
of what you are seeking to produce in us, that because you have known us and have called us and have justified us, you are now working to sanctify us. And so be at work in us through the power of the Spirit to make us like you, righteous and just. And we ask this in the name of the Righteous One, our Advocate, who lives forever to intercede for us, Christ Himself. Amen.